I was in a small town somewhere north of London, and I saw two women who were at least 80 years old sitting in a pub after midnight. They were chain-smoking and pounding the booze and cussing like sailors. I was captivated, and I just couldn't stop watching them and decided that I had to talk to them. So I walked up and politely introduced myself. And one of the ladies looked over at me like I just kicked her dog and like I was messing up their entire world. And she shouted at me, bugger off! And I decided that uh, these women have obviously found the secret to life, and I hope that I can maybe one day be like them when I grow up. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. And I'd like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Susan Calsill. Susan is a singer-songwriter who lives in New Orleans, Louisiana. And you can find out everything you need to know about Susan at SusanCalsill.com. I've known Susan for quite a few years now, and we have a lot of mutual friends. I've been fortunate enough to get to see her play quite a few times uh, as a solo artist and also with her brothers. And when I sit there and listen to her sing with her brothers and harmonize with her brothers, other people can sing the same harmonies, but it's not the same thing. There's this magic that takes place. I'm really, really happy that I get to witness it from time to time. I caught up with Susan in Austin, Texas, and we met up at our buddy Cameron's house, and he was nice enough to let us use the living room. But uh, it was really good to see her, and she seems like she's in a really good place right now. And I enjoyed the conversation. Here's Susan Cowsill. Story of the Cowsills, I think, probably started back in 1963, really. Um, I was born in 59, so I wasn't really involved very much. But my two oldest brothers, uh, Bill and Bob, were uh, kind of musically inclined. My mom sang. My brothers could sing. I think somewhere around 1963 or four, my dad, who was a Navy, uh, career Navy man at the time, had brought back a couple of guitars from Spain for souvenir for the guys. And uh, they picked them up and they naturally began playing guitar just like that. Poof. No lessons, <laughs> no nothing. And they, you know, and they sang two part harmony. And I'm sure they thought they were the Everly Brothers briefly. Um, until Peter and Gordon came along. Um, and so those two guys just kind of started playing around the neighborhood. They were playing, you know, my mom's friends' luncheons, like my mom had friends who had luncheons, but you know <laughs> what I mean. She knew somebody who had friends who had luncheons. And um, that kind of, you know, rolled along for a couple of years, and then, uh, you know, then then rock and roll started, you know, getting big and, and the Beatles came out, and 
you know, we all watched the Beatles on Sullivan and stuff. And, and slowly as, as time was going by, I have six brothers and they all kind of uh, started growing up and into a musical um, creature. And it was kind of convenient for my oldest brother, who the Cowsills was our leader, Bill, as he could kind of, you know, it was almost like he was farming musicians in some way. And my, uh, my brother, Barry, uh, became a drummer at the age of eight. So they had a guitar, two guitars and drums. And then my brother, John, got old enough and they put my brother, John, on the drums and my brother, Barry, on the bass. Now, there were a couple of brothers on the in-between, but one of them was more sport-related and the other one was more um, inclined toward uh, illegal activities. So we bypassed them just briefly, but the one who was inclined towards sports became a part of the Bacalsils. But So then we had this four-piece band with these kids who ranged from eight to, I don't know, 18. And uh, they... You know, the Beatles, you know, the Sullivan thing happened, and my brothers really wanted to be rock gods. My dad retired from the Navy in 64 and just kind of basically said, you know, all right, bottom electric stuff. And they were really good. And the kids, the boys, the two younger boys could sing too. And and my dad would make tapes of them and stuff and bring them to New York City. We lived in Rhode Island. And they got a couple of little record deals when they were younger with just the four guys on Joda and um, Mercury, I think. Um, in fact, Johnny Nash produced their first <laughs> their first record. It was, it was crazy. There's four completely, the whitest white boys you would ever know, being produced by, by Johnny Nash, the guy who, who sang the Hercules theme song in the uh, cartoon. For all of you out there listening, I know. <laughs> and... Um, they didn't really go far. I think they were on DECA, too. Were, I don't know. They had this, like, mediocre, like, thing going on. And then somewhere down the road, some my dad, you know, was in New York City. And, and I don't remember how it happened. The guys ran into, um, they met these people from MGM Records. And um, Artie Kornfeld, who was a songwriter in the 60s, he had uh, uh, and a, and a producer was working with MGM and kind of took the project on. Like one morning, everybody woke up and my mom was in the band. And then um, they made this record and they got a hit record with it. They, got a, they made an album. They got a hit record with the first single. And then like two months later, everybody woke up and I was in the band too. And then, and then the day after that, we all woke up and we were on it. So. <laughs> Ed Sullivan, yes. Well, we found out that he drank um, by standing next to him when he, you have to come run out after you're done performing. Um, and he smelled like liquor. But he was a very, very nice man. And, um, you know, that was a very exciting day for everybody to be on the Ed Sullivan show. I managed to worm my way in just before we got on national TV. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. I was trying so hard to get in that band. And uh, it was a pretty big deal for my brothers, you know, because uh, they worshipped the Beatles. And, you know, for four kids who were watching the Beatles in 64 and three years later end up on Ed Sullivan, too. Yeah. I'd say that was quite an accomplishment. That's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. And we were on several, we were on three more times. Uh, we, uh, he had a TV show in 68, um, a variety show, him and June. 
and we were guests on that show. And uh, though we, we, we sang a song with him, um, we sang a children go where I send thee, that kind of gospel tune, um, along with doing some of our own songs. But uh, in the rehearsals for, he was an amazing, God, he's freaking giant. I mean, I was nine, so he looked probably bigger than he really was. And during rehearsal at one point, you know, they always used to do this to me. They, you know, I was always sitting on somebody's knee. I was sitting on Colonel Tom Parker's knee once, which was really creepy. But anyway, <laughs> Johnny, they, uh, in rehearsal, they were like, oh, oh Johnny, uh, put the little girl up on your knee. Let's try that for visual. And he hoisted me up, and he, he wore these, um, you know, like the gas station jumpsuits, you know, that have the name on them. He had like some bill or somebody's name on his. But he was wearing that, and I remember he picked me up, and he put me on his knee, and I remember instantly landing on a rock. I mean, the guy felt like this giant rock, and I remember I literally said to my nine-year-old self, this must be what it feels like to sit on the Lincoln Monument. <laughs> because it was just, he, was, he felt like he was made of stone, because he was, you know, and it was so high up, you know. <laughs> so I remember thinking that. <laughs> but I and in the actual taping of the show, I ended up I, I just sat next to him and I had my hand on his knee because he was so cool. He had on a ruffle shirt, so did we, and uh, it was pretty badass. And I, and he said, which you know they wrote this in because this kiss just can't be true. He said something like, you know, we were the best singing band like my that he had ever heard. Now this is the guy who's married to the Carter family's <laughs> chick. So it's like, yeah, right, Johnny. Sure. He had the Statler brothers as his backup singers yeah, at the time. Exactly. Yeah. And we we were the best. That's right? a okay. huge compliment. Well, yeah, I can't imagine he meant it. Um, and a really sad thing, one of my brother Bob's biggest regrets was that um after the taping of that show, Johnny had invited him over to his place. For a pickin section session with him and Carl, Carl Perkins. Perkins. Yeah, <laughs> you know me and Carl and some of the boys are gonna get together and and just you know sit on the porch and play guitar. You want to come? And my brother Bob was so floored, so he was like, yeah, nineteen. He was just like, uh, I'm busy. Oh, <laughs> I know. He really regrets it. Wow. He was too scared to go. It was Johnny Cash and Carl. There was a time where um, the councils were, I, I, my dad, I think, was seeing the, the end of the family band, and he started kind of grooming the younger kids um, for possible solo careers when we were, you know, I think I was 10 or 11. Anyway, um, the guy who had produced our TV special, we had a, an NBC TV special that came on. It interrupted the ghost in Mrs. Muir, as a matter of fact. I remember that vividly. Um, and uh, so the guy who produced it, Greg Garrison, he also produced um, and wrote the Dean Martin show and uh, asked me to be on, asked me to come and sing with Dean. And uh, that was really cool. Now, I really liked Dean Martin. I liked the Dean and Jerry movies, you know, Jerry Lewis. I mean, those, that was some funny, funny shit. And, um, you know, and he was cool, and he, you know, he sang the the moon hits your eye like pizza pie, and I was ten, so I thought that was a rockin' song. And the Matt Helm, 
And then it was Matt Helm. I mean, who could, <laughs> more importantly to Otis and I, he was Matt Helm. And uh, I was a little leery of it because he was notorious um, womanizer and I was a young woman. <laughs> but uh, it turned out that he was one of the least sleaziest guys that I uh, had the opportunity uh, of their knee to sit upon as I sat on his knee too. And um, we sang Shine on Harvest Moon, really nice version of it, really. I mean, it's Dean Martin. He's sitting there singing like Dean Martin, and I'm sitting there just, I think I kind of sounded like Annie, like from like the, the play. <laughs> I was really trying to sound good. Um, but he was really super sweet, and um, he tried to cover up the fact that perhaps he had had a tad um, – of a bit of a sip off of a cocktail that afternoon with some banaca, which I thought was kind of cute because I kind of was hip to the banaca visine thing um, as a young girl. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew what he was doing, man. And and uh, Charles Nelson Riley and Michael Landon were on the show. And Charles Nelson Riley was standing with my mother at rehearsal. And I can remember this too really vividly because, you know, he was on Hollywood Squares and stuff, and that was cool. Uncle Croc's Block. Yeah, what he was, was he a crocodile and he, he played a. Oh, what was that? He had a Saturday morning cartoon. Good lord, thing. he did. Was he also on Bewitched? Maybe he I don't might know. have been. <laughs> he was all over the place, but he was a mess, and he was like a true mess, like in person, like that nervous Nelly guy that he played. Like he really was. And I remember him saying to my mother, well, "I was getting, I was sitting up on a stool, ready to go sing with Dean, while he put in his binaca." And I hopped off the stool and I just kind of went over and we started doing it. And I heard him say as I walked away, he went, oh my God. He goes, my God. It, I mean, isn't she nervous? I mean, she just acts like she, she's just not a care in the way. I mean, I'm a wreck 24-7. <laughs> and look at her. She's just, and my mom's like, yeah, well, you know, she's just a kid. She doesn't know any better. I'm just a wreck 24-7. I mean, he, I'm like, God, that sounds like Charles Nelson Riley. Oh, yeah, well, it is. It's cool. There's little Joe off in the corner shining up his gun. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, well, we, I went to school with the Brady Bunch. We all went to a school in Hollywood called Professional Children's School, Hollywood Professional School for actors and ne'er-do-wells, uh, musicians, people who traveled a lot. Um, it was a, pretty much a joke of a school. We went from nine till noon or something. It was just, it was like a front, a school front for um, young actors and actresses and musicians to not get an education. Anyway, so one year the Brady Bunch came to school, which we all thought was pretty cool. Um, I and Maureen became very good friends. She had a crush on my brother, John, who was the drummer for the Cow Sills. She had had a crush on him for a long time. Uh, he wasn't at the school at the time. And I had a crush on on Peter Brady, which would be Chris Knight, the middle boy. So we kind of made a deal where upon, um, if she made things right between me and Peter Brady, uh, when my brother came to town at the summertime, then we'd have a party and I'd make things right with her and my brother, John. So that was kind of our agreement and the basis of our friendship at first. But then we became buddies. This is the part that gets a little sketchy, uh, but I, I just have to be honest about it. So, and... <laughs> oh, I feel. So I'm going to skip some of it. And I'm just going to simply say that I had never shoplifted before this day and I haven't since. But um, a group of us went to Northridge Mall, um, loaded down with um, uh, 
kind of instructed, if you will, um, to bring giant bags, um, the, that this was um, the way to proceed to do this. I have to tell the whole story. I mean, she basically taught us how to do it. <laughs> we kind of had like a little like mini seminar on what to do before we all went there. You know, we're, we're kids. She was crazy. We were crazy. We were all crazy. So we went, and we went to the Northridge Mall, and Maureen was kind of leading us, and it was, it was pretty awesome. And, and, you know, you start out small. You, you know, start off with, like, earrings and things, and, like, and then you go to necklaces and bracelets. You know, and then you move up a little bit, like maybe socks, you know, or and then, like, hats or something. And then as you progress along, you know, maybe a pair of pants or a shirt or something like that. And I was really good. I was very, very, very good, and I—I I mean, I was only there an hour before I was full on uh, into clothes, and um, I was going for my first shirt, and uh, it was really awesome. It was green corduroy, big puffy sleeves. It had paisley cuffs and a little paisley kind of cloth thing. It was a beautiful shirt. It was a Sweet Baby James, which was a very popular model of shirt back in the day, and I really wanted this. Um, and one thing we couldn't figure out was why Mo was doing it because Maureen, you know, she could have just bought the stuff. But I guess it was the thrill, and when you're a kid, you just do kooky things. Um, so anyway, we all marched in to uh, this one place, and you know, and Maureen, you know, we all just kind of look at each other, and everybody just kind of do do your business, and then you get out of there. And we all, so we were all done. Everybody gave each other the okie dokie look, and then we were leaving. <laughs> And uh, the girls walked out in front of me, and I walked out last. And boop, 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 all of a sudden goes on. And and this is a new sound. Now this is nineteen. Um, it was before like security systems hadn't happened yet, and there wasn't those things on on clothes, those big um blocky things that go off when you walk through. I we had never seen one till that day, that ill-fated day. And I walked through, we all walked through, and we, we, you know, we heard it going off, but we really honestly didn't know what it was, so we just kept cruising, and this one woman comes out, very sweet lady, and goes, um, girls, would y'all do us a big favor, and we have a new security system, and it went off, and we're sure it's nothing, but we need y'all to walk back through, you know, just to, to, you know, we're working out the kinks, and I'm, you know, I'm like Clifford the Big Red Dog, and I go running back, you know, all helpful with my bag full of stuff, and, um, as I was starting to walk through the little gate thing, I remember turning around and looking down the, the, the hallway of the mall, and all I could see was blonde wind, the blonde hair flapping, <laughs> flapping in the wind, just peeling down that hallway, and her, her hair just going, that Marsha Brady hair flapping, and I'm like, holy crap. And I couldn't see my other girlfriends anywhere either. I'm like, I have been deserted oh. by, my, by my posse. By the James gang. <laughs> so I went in and got shook down. And I'm telling this, I'm crying again. I did a lot of crying with cops back then. Uh, it worked uh, often. Uh, they unloaded my bag full of unbelievable amount of shit that I didn't even realize I had managed in the short amount of time I was there. And then they pulled out the shirt and they showed me the thing. And I'm like, what is that? And it's a brand new device, the clickyani thingy. Um, I told him it was my first time. He didn't really believe me because of how much was in this bag. I just, you know, told him I was just really good at it. 
I was living with my brother at the time, so they, because they were like, well, we're going to call your parents. And I was like, oh, thank Jesus. Because I was living with my brother. I'm like, well, okay, call my brother. And he came and got me and stuff. And, and then didn't see Maureen ever again. We never had the party for my brother John, and I never got hooked up with Peter Brady. Um, but years later, uh, the Cow Sills did a show, um, and and Barry Williams, who played Greg Brady, was the MC for it. We did some touring, and he and I became buddies. And he told me that he knew about this story that Maureen had shared it with him, and I was like, "Tell her to call me," you know. And he's like, "Ah, oh, she feels bad." And then this book came out. She told the whole story, and here's the caveat. So she tells this whole story about what happened, more or less. And then she tells what happened to her after I saw her running down the thing, down the hallway. It turns out that she split, went to her car, and spent like three or four hours on the floor of her Mercedes, panic-stricken that the cops were, you know, because she figured, I've told and now they're looking for Marsha Brady in every, you know, brown Merce diesel Mercedes Benz in the parking lot at the Northridge Mall in Los Angeles, California. And she waited and waited till it got dark. Bless her heart. Just sick to her stomach. And then waited for nighttime and then got up and then drove home. And the really sweet part is, is that in, in her book, at the end, she says, and I never saw Susan Cousel again, and and... She said, and I, I hope that when I, if I ever run into her again, that she forgives me. It was super sweet. I think it was 1969, 68. And the American Dairy Association had decided that milk needed um, a hip boost. So they went about getting some bands, um, popular bands of the time, to endorse milk. The drinking of milk, the vitality, the vitamin-enriched product that was going to make uh, young America sit up and take notice. So they got us to do it. They got the young bloods to do it. They tried to get Jefferson Airplane to do it, and I believe they said no. There were some other really cool, like 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 uh, psychedelic band. It's not coming to mind right now. Dang it. Anyway, it was like about four of us, and then the cowsills. I don't know how, you know, what they thought there. But, I mean, we actually drank a lot of milk. There were six, seven kids, and when the ADA came to our house, they opened up our fridge, and we literally had like, you know, seven gallons of milk in there that were going to be consumed within at least two or three days. And uh, so we, we represented the ADA for about two years, and we did milk commercials, and you know, they were nationwide. It was really fun to do them, actually. Um, and I, you can, I think you can see them on YouTube. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're out there somewhere with everything else I've ever said or done. Did you have to make appearances or anything? Yeah, yeah, we would go. <laughs> yes, we had to make appearances. Uh, as we toured the country, we would go, uh, we had to go to dairy farms often and, um, uh, you know, just kind of show up and milk a couple of cows, feed a few babies, <laughs> feed some baby cows with bottles, which I enjoyed. And then, and then of course, sample the fresh milk um, straight from the udder, which is most disgusting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, it makes me think of a story. When we, we went to um, Europe one year, all around the same time, we went to Rome, and, and we were eating in a restaurant in, in Rome. And uh, I remember, you know, my brothers really did like milk. 
And we weren't, we weren't allowed to ever be seen holding any other beverage. I remember that. Like if you had a Coke, you had to hide it and you could only be, be pictured, t- have photographed with milk. Anyway, we were all at this restaurant and we were, you know, my brothers just kept ordering milk. You know, I mean, everybody would get two large glasses of milk with each meal and then just keep ordering them and then dessert with milk and milk and milk and milk. And finally it was like dessert. And this woman comes out and, my, and the guys ordered more milk. And this lady comes out and she goes, she literally said, you drain my cow. You drain my cow. And my brothers were horrified because what they realized was that they were drinking like unhomogenized, unpasteurized cow's milk from a cow in the back of this restaurant. This woman was pissed. You, you drain it. And she was screaming at them. And they were like, whoa, everybody felt sick. It was awful. 69 or 70 hair, which was our, our biggest hit record, actually. And it, it was kind of a controversial situation where we recorded this song for a television show that Carl Reiner was, was doing. It was um, a, a TV show. It was a special. And it was, it was um, all focused around the styles of the day, uh, just kind of our society as it stood in 1970. It was called The Wonderful World of Pizzazz. And, uh, you know, just culturally, you know, how things had shifted from the 50s to the 60s in in style and music and and just in every way. And what they wanted from us was they wanted the cow sills to come on and um, the musical hair was out. And they thought it would, Carl thought it would be funny if the cow sills kind of sang a song from this, this play. Uh, controversial play and um they dressed us in you know complete hippie attire with these wigs from japan you know in in the the dress the hippie dress of the day and you know the irony is that we're the clean-cut cow sills and here we are dressing like this and singing this song and my brothers went into the studio and, and recorded this song from the play and it really came out really really good and it was the first time the guys really, like since we had gotten popular, had gone back to playing all their own instruments. I mean, they played their instruments on our records, but there was always augmentation by studio cats and you know strings and all this crap that, that Madison Avenue did to my poor little rock band brothers. Turned them into, you know, this other machine that, you know, got really famous. But anyway, so the guys, Bill and Bob, went in and produced this and arranged this, this version of this song that we performed on this television program. And uh, it was all cool. It was really fun to do. And um, my brothers really liked this recording. And they brought it to MGM and said, look, you know what? Listen to this. You know, we just did it for this TV show, but it's really cool. And we kind of would like to have it be released as a single from our next album. And MGM was just like, you know, you're out of your fucking minds. Okay? You're the cow sills. That's funny and cute for what you did it for. Nobody's going to buy this from y'all, you know, and go back and, you know, go back to, you know, get the soap out and wash up and come back, you know, properly dressed in your lemon yellow pants up to your ankles and give us what we want. So the guys were kind of bummed out and uh, we went on a tour. Uh, I can't remember what we were doing, but we were in, we were W something, 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 some big station in Chicago. So whatever that one is, sorry station in Chicago we were doing an interview we were on tour and the guy and they were really pissed off at MGM for this so my brothers 
they had a acetate, that's what we called them back in those days. And the guys had said, we didn't have a, we were in the middle of making a new album. The guys said, do you have anything new? You know, and my brothers went, well, you know, we're in the middle of making a record, but we do have this thing with us right now that we, we just really want people to hear it. We did this thing for your TV show, blah, 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 blah. So they put it on, um, the guys said, we loved it. We'd love to play it. So they played it on, on the radio show and the switchboard lit up, <laughs> literally, and it took off on its own. And MGM was at both, you know, times super pissed and then could not, I mean, it just, it, it went viral. If viral had been viral back then. And they had to release it as our next single. And it was our biggest single ever. Then my brother, okay, so it's kind of this time, this, in we live in Santa Monica, California, and uh, you know the movement is 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 afoot, and it's hippie time, and it's drugs and rock and roll. And my oldest brothers are getting older, and they're hanging. I mean, this is you know, <laughs> this is when the Partridge Family thing was coming into play, and we were supposed to be the Partridge Family. Okay, they wrote that show for us, but once they got to us, because they were in production of it for. Two, two years, and by the time they got to us, we had outgrown the image and the, the kids that they were writing about, which is how they went on to get actors in that. They came out and lived with us for like a week to see if we could play ourselves, which we could not any longer. They did want me to be in it still because I was still cute and young. Anyway, so, but my brothers, they were, you know, they were turning into hippies. I mean, they were just being who they would become my brother bill started hanging out with brian wilson they were buddies and he you know started really you know he started getting high and we had a tour it was the hair tour and we we started off in vegas we were, we were doing two weeks at the Fling, flamingo hotel in las vegas where we went to see elvis presley play which is how i ended up on tom parker's lap uh, and he introduced us in the audience, which was a pretty big, exciting thing, having Elvis Presley introduce you in an audience. That was cool. But uh, that was also an ill-fated tour because um, my brother Bill, who was 22, legal at the time, was gambling and getting loaded. And, you know, my dad got pissed at him, and they got in some row uh, at the Flamingo Hotel. But I do remember that my dad got taken to jail for it. They were fighting and carrying on. My dad kicked my brother Bill out of the band. Yeah, for like smoking pot and being a regular, normal 22-year-old guy. Yeah, and that really, you know, Bill and Bob, it was their band, and that, that was kind of the end of it. That was, that was a drag. And, uh, you know, then we just started doing, it, it just, it, it got bad. <laughs> you know, it was just, they were trying to get us, my brothers were evolving musically, and we, we did a couple of really great last records that we uh, left MGM, we went to London Records, and made two really great records that, you know, was more music that they wanted to be making. But, you know, families are meant to grow up and go to college and move away and get married and, and not live together forever. It's just, it's not right. It's not normal. And that's what happened. As a, it, we just, everybody got sick of it and sick of my dad and everybody split. Next thing I know, I was stuck there by myself. But I got out. It's all in the documentary. And people still love those records. They do. And they're still played. And we still play. I play with my brother. You know, besides my solo career, I, 
I play with the guys all the time. It's great fun and great show. And we even, uh, a couple of my nephews are in it now. You know, they play keyboard and guitar. And it's, it's a really great show. And uh, we have a documentary on Showtime right now, so you can watch the whole demise <laughs> in front of your very eyes. <laughs> I remember I was staying in Nashville, and um, we were supposed to play a show together at the basement. Yep. And about three or four days before that, Hurricane Katrina hit. I remember sitting up all night watching on TV and just wondering, you know, what was actually happening. And uh, a few days later, you and Russ showed up and just completely shell-shocked. And yeah. uh, maybe you can... Where were we? Were we in Indiana or in Nashville? In Nashville. The basement was in Nashville. Yeah. Right. Okay, because I remember seeing you everywhere. You know what I mean? We went so many places that those first two weeks. But, uh, yeah, I actually had been in Oklahoma recording with Dwight Twilly, my ex-boyfriend and compatriot and musical buddy. And Russ had been in New Orleans, and we were coming to Nashville that week, that Monday, Tuesday, to play with you in the basement. Uh, and, uh, uh, I had no idea that the storm was coming cause I was in a studio for three days. I had left uh, new Orleans just for the weekend, which means I had a pair of jeans and two shirts. And, uh, then I talked to Russ on that Sunday and he told me that, uh, and he didn't really know either. His mom had to tell him cause he was putting in drywall. <laughs> this is, he was drywalling our basement. Uh, we were making a studio out of it. Poor guy. He worked for like three days putting this shit up, only to have it all just completely. <laughs> it's kind of terribly funny. Um, and so he uh, told me that I needed to, because I was supposed to go home and we were both going to drive up to Nashville for our gigs. And he just told me to reroute my my ticket and meet him, meet him in Nashville. And uh, he drove from New Orleans up to... He went to Birmingham first and then then on to Nashville. He took a was generally a four to five hour ride from New Orleans to Birmingham. Took him twelve hours to leave town to get to Birmingham because of the mass exodus for Katrina. Weren't the highways all side all lanes were moving out of town? All lanes in? were moving out. Yeah, there was no coming in. Yeah, they they turned everything into out. He had to cross a massive causeway, which is a highway across water. That is low, low to the, you know, it's not like a bridge. It's a bridge, duh, it's over water, but it's, you know, you're, you know, you're almost level with the water. And he was stuck on that causeway for three hours and the water was, I mean, had he been there for two more hours, he would have got washed away because that causeway did. So that was pretty harrowing for him, needless to say. And uh, they made it to Nashville. We made it, and we did. We did. We played, didn't we? Yeah. Were you? We you guys. Were, you guys were just really understandably. Just we were out of it. And was Kimbro there? Was Will Kimbro there? I don't. Man, I just remember you and I Tim. I don't remember. And we had dogs with us. Our dogs were with us. And uh, Miranda wasn't Miranda. My daughter was with us even, and we were we were we were pretty freaked out. Um, we had. You know, we didn't know what was going on at that time at all, even. And then we stayed in Nashville for about a week at Pat and Sally McLaughlin's and watched CNN until Tim yanked the cord out of the wall one day and told us we weren't allowed to watch any more TV. Uh, 
and waited to hear what was going on. And we had ended up taking on six feet of water in the newly drywalled <laughs> room that Russ worked on. And uh, our city was pretty much gone for all intents and purposes. And uh, my brother was missing. And uh, we hung around for like four or five months, four months, five? It was August, September, October, November, December, January. Yeah. We drove around in, a, in our Kia Sedona for four or five months. And we came to Indy and hung out with y'all there. And we, we were everywhere. We were in Kentucky. We were just couch surfing. And our kids were living. My daughter was in uh, California with my sister-in-law, Vicky, And uh, Nick was in Birmingham. And we just kind of waited it out. And we're looking for my brother for a long time. And he wasn't showing up anywhere. He was also in New Orleans at the time and uh, didn't leave. And we didn't know. Uh, he had left a couple of messages on the phone that had finally come through many days later that he was there. And then by the time I got back to NOLA, just to leave and be able to drive in to look around at stuff, uh, we couldn't find him. And then in January, uh, Chris, over Christmas, my brothers gave DNA, which is what you do when, you know, because they were collecting bodies, you know, and the only way to find out if your loved one was amongst that was to give some DNA. And so after about four months of looking for him, you know, we went on entertainment tonight. We were lucky because we were famous, so we could utilize. We were on CNN and Entertainment Tonight, looking for him in case he, because he was kind of a knucklehead. Jones, kind of a guy. Uh, we call him Boxcar Barry. He liked. He was, yeah. He was actually scheduled to go into a music cares facility rehab that Monday. So anyway, it ended up that he drowned in the Mississippi. We found that out in January, which was a drag. Um, but we moved home in January, and uh, see, it's been seven years since, and New Orleans has managed to pull its bootstraps up. And uh, we're still living there. We, we tried to leave a couple of times because it was kind of hard to be there. You know, you want to go home should go home and we love our city. Um, but after being there for a couple of years, it was a little difficult after a while, just exhausting. The rebuilding of the city is kind of like being a, a doctor on call for too long and you needed a rest, you know? Um, it definitely showed how many really beautiful people there are in new Orleans. Yes, it did. Cause especially the music community, I'm always taken by how connected everyone seems to be in that music community. Yeah, pretty much everywhere. You know, yeah, we, we're weird, we musicians. What the hell is we, we're, we're all connected and shit, you know? It's really true. It's just because nobody else likes us, so we all have to take care of each other. They just want to hear our music, but they don't really want to, like, come to dinner at our house or anything. <laughs> Or, like, go to the laundromat with us or anything. <laughs> but, yeah, but it, well, not just New Orleans. You know, yeah, we really, we showed our, our colors as a, as a, a city. Um, but I will say that the, the whole United States of America was pretty darn good to us, too. I mean, you know, Indiana was beautiful to us. You know, everywhere we went, 
people, I was amazed by it. I wouldn't have thought it had it not happened, you know? Because all you hear is all the shit. Now nobody gives a crap about anybody. And uh, that's just not really ultimately true. I don't believe that at all. I, I don't believe people are innately evil or anything even like that. I think people are really, really good-hearted for the most part. Just give them an opportunity to show it and you'll be super surprised. Thank you, Susan. I Thank appreciate you, you uh, chatting with me. It was fun. All right. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, honey. Thanks. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Susan for meeting up with me at our buddy Cameron's house in Austin, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Susan at SusanCalsill.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can even buy one of Amy's records or one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It helps us move up in the search rankings and helps a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to say hi to us, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.